Psalm 43. Psalm 43. I want to uh, draw your attention to verse number 5 in the 43rd Psalm. You'll read this text with me, and it'll sound very familiar uh, to what we looked at just one week ago. Psalm 43, and verse number 5, the Bible says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope in God. For I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. Now look with me in verse number 11 of Psalm 42. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God. For I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. You see, we have an identical verse here, and it's kind of a, a beautiful uh, a beautiful thing when you get to see the Psalms connected and, uh, and really kind of uh, drawing a theme across uh, two different pieces of, of uh, poetry or two different songs here. And uh, it really is a great reminder to us that the sons of Korah, remember, are uh, leading the people in worship. And one of those pieces that they would bring again and again, it was a general hymn uh, used for the people of God to sing generally, whether in high days or good days days or times when they were alone and afraid or sad, uh, they could sing these songs, a general application. It could be a group or it could be just one person. Uh, this, this verse could be a strength and an encouragement to them. And it really begins, or the whole idea pins on this idea of giving our heart an analysis, looking at the heart and asking or demanding really that the heart give an account for what is happening. So often we as believers, uh, we 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 follow our emotions and we go with our emotion. You can see in our culture the danger and heartbreak that happens when people run on their emotions. What feels good right now? What feels right right now? Uh, feelings are so subjective and therefore so dangerous for us to be uh, building entire lives on and uh, the consequences that we would uh, we would have to live with. I remember as a boy, my dad and I would wrestle and uh, we enjoyed wrestling. He'd pop me in the head and, and he we'd, we'd lock arms and, and uh, it, got, it got a little more fun the older I got and uh, the, the larger I got, I could start to kind of match him, and uh, and he doesn't uh, he doesn't know it, but I could have whooped him uh, probably two years before I left the house. I just didn't want to do it to disrespect him, you know. Uh, no, I'm just teasing. Uh, the reality is is that I loved getting uh, getting to wrestle my dad and and having him there, and uh, we we kind of bat back and forth, and and uh, it was a lot of fun that banter that we had together. Uh, but one of the things he would say to me is he would say, "Son," as he'd start to get his hands going. He'd say, "Son, don't let a moment of uh, don't let a moment of of a bad choice ruin the rest of your life. Don't let one bad choice." ruin the rest of your life. And uh, I think about that. That was some really good counsel. Uh, not not from him. I could have taken him. But, uh, you know, just general thinking, general living uh, says to us, we shouldn't let one moment, one bad decision ruin the rest of our life. And it is happening. We are watching it happen. On a national level, we are watching this happen. Uh, people from every side of the argument believe they're right simply because they're worked up. Simply because their emotions are involved, they can't see how anybody else could be right and how they maybe their viewpoint has flaws. And I'm not pointing at any political party or any group on any side of, uh, of the any 
any uh, discussion going on in our culture. I do see a, a, a problem when an entire nation is running on anger, running on energy, running on passion, instead of stopping and seeking the Lord and following after Christ. I remind you, it is righteousness that exalts a nation, not just angst and, uh, and passion. This is not what exalts a nation. What exalts a nation are people who go back to the Word of God and live the principles of God's word. Now, it may feel good to go off of our emotions, but if we're honest, the, that same feeling of feeling right in our emotions also brings a double-edged sword. And that is many times we have to carry the burden of the feelings of doing wrong. And that's what I want to discuss with you here tonight. In our text, we find a, a somber and saddened uh, believer the people of God have come together, and uh, in this text we find the psalmist, the sons of Korah, and they are asking this question again, this general question again, and they are under, they are they are seeking after. I want you to understand here that the the psalmist is in a search; he is seeking after wisdom. At his core, what the psalmist is doing is seeking the wisdom. Of God, and here's where we step into Jim Berg's study that we had been studying on uh, on quieting the soul, taking time to quiet the soul, and uh, and Jim Berg points out a lot of these pieces, and I want you to grab a hold of them tonight. I don't want to uh, in any way take away from uh, from the work that that uh, Jim Berg has done. So I want to uh, make sure right up front, you know, this is a continuation of that study material, really a, a powerful and profound uh, approach to God's word, but you'll see as I as I connect Psalm 43 and the wisdom here or the the, the elements of of uh, of that study. So I want to look at it tonight. I want you to consider with me what wisdom is. You see the psalmist is seeking wisdom, but the question ultimately is what is wisdom? What is wisdom? And I want to understand wisdom. In verse number one, we find that the author is resigning himself to the wisdom of God. Tonight, I want to encourage you, you could start right there. You say, I don't want my emotions to run my life. I, I want to know that I'm walking with God. And a lot of times we have these feelings of, of regret and shame and heartache and hurt. Uh, sometimes we have feelings that we are inferior or that we are, are unable to face the challenges in front of us. And, uh, and sometimes those emotions are directly connected to our approach to truth and our approach to wisdom. So consider with me, what is wisdom? In verse number one, once you see there with me, judge me, O God. Judge me, O God. What is he doing? He's approaching God as a judge. That's what we go to a judge for, is to seek the wisdom of the judge. We want the judge to be able to divide between that which is good and that which is not good, that which is clean and pure, and that which is not. We want the judge to have wisdom enough to look at life and be able to instantly tell what is right and what is wrong. And and the psalmist goes directly before the Lord and asks the greatest judge of all time, God, I trust your wisdom so you judge me. You divide what is right and wrong. You tell me, and you be the one to judge my soul. I want to understand the wisdom of God. What is the wisdom of God tonight? The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 11 and verse number 33, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways 
past finding out. You see, the psalmist has done the right thing by approaching God because God's ways are much higher than our ways. His ways are beyond even finding out. We can't even understand how and why God does what he does. His ways are beyond our ways. They are beyond us finding them out. And so the the author here is coming to the correct judge because he knows this judge will, will divide with a judgment of wisdom. The question ultimately is, is we trust God and his wisdom. We have to ask the question, how much does God know? How much does God know? Now, someone might say, well, God knows everything. But think of the ramifications of God knowing everything. If, if God knows everything, then we know that God's knowledge and God's wisdom is infinite. It is infinite. If we say God knows everything, we are saying that God's wisdom and knowledge is infinite. Some people refer to this as omniscient. In other words, he knows all. But his knowledge, this is a way for us to say that his knowledge is infinite. So what God makes decisions from, what God divides as wisdom, is the infinite source of of knowledge that he has, the the ever the ever stretching source of his knowledge is greater than uh, the knowledge that is there to fill it. Uh, consider this: the the knowledge of God by by the Bible standard is intuitive. In other words, God doesn't need to learn. God doesn't have a tutor. God doesn't have someone who comes and counsels him and gives him direction. Job tells us that as much. God even looks to Job and says, where were you when I was creating? Because God didn't need a judge. He needs no overseer. He needs no ruler. God, in his knowledge, is intuitive. He has the ability to know before there is even a subject to know. God knows everything. We also then know that he does not need to deliberate. He doesn't need to step back. I, I tell you, I'm, I'm one of those kind of, uh, of characters that I don't make decisions right away. In fact, my dad, uh, he always had a saying, if, it is, if the answer has to be now, the answer is no. And I took that with me into my adulthood. My kids will say, oh, dad, you need to make a decision right now. Okay, well, if I have to make a decision now, it's no. And by the way, it saved me a lot of money over my life. Because I can't tell you how many times the salesman was standing right there. Hey, you don't want to miss this. This deal will never come back. This is the greatest deal of all time. But you've got to sign on the line right here, right now. If the answer is now, the answer is no. And God here, he never needs to step back and deliberate. He never needs to step back like I do when I have to say, no, 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 no. Let me think about it. Give me some time. Let me contemplate it. Let me weigh out the pros and cons. And I have to step back and really think about it. God does none of that. He knows the moment the problem is facing us. He knows the solution. He is intuitive. In other words, he never learns and he doesn't need to deliberate. It is infallible, meaning that he never gets it wrong. He never gets wrong information. He never gives wrong information. He never needs more information. He is infallible. His wisdom and knowledge is intriguing. In other words, it gives us a response, a proper response to God's wisdom is found in Psalm 139, verse 6. Verse six and that is that we wonder at the knowledge of God. Worship is another natural result, according to Revelation 15, 3 through 4. When we see the wisdom and knowledge of God, the natural response of man is to stand in wonder of it, and it is to 
bow down and worship the one with that kind of wisdom. Understand, not only is God's, God's knowledge infinite, his knowledge is incomprehensible. It's incomprehensible. We cannot even begin to comprehend the wisdom of God. Uh, not God's knowledge is incompre- incomprehensible. We cannot understand the why of the issue. You know, many times we do not understand why, but we do get to place our trust. In Romans chapter 8, if you're taking your Bible and turning there, or maybe even there on the screen, but Romans chapter 8 and verse number 28, the Bible says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You see, we often cannot understand why it is on us to understand who. We are, not, we are not expected to understand the why of every situation in this life, but we do get to rest in knowing who. I don't know all that's going to go on tomorrow, but I do know God has control of it. I don't know all that's going to face me over the next several months, but I do know that God has control of it. I can tell you I don't know why I have had things transpire in my life. There are times that I can't step back and say, God, I, don't, I really don't know why you let this into my life. But I can trust that God, who is good, knows why he's doing it. And I can trust that it is for my good. And so we recognize that God's knowledge is incomprehensible. I, am not, I, don't, I don't have to understand his knowledge and wisdom for me to believe his knowledge and wisdom. It's amazing to me how many who reject the name of Jesus today and reject the very existence of God that expect to be able to know God's ways. So they say, well, there is no God because I can't explain this thing over here. As if the ability to explain something makes God possible. No, the very fact that something happens that is unexplainable tells us there is a force or being or creator, as we would call him God, and as scripture calls him God, we recognize that that is a proof of the existence of. Just because a scientist can't figure it out does not mean I can't believe it until he does. The Bible makes clear I can know that there is a God. I can know who without necessarily knowing why. We recognize he is incomprehensible. We also understand, if we're going to boil it down then, what wisdom is, and all of God's measure of wisdom, then what is wisdom? Wisdom is knowing and choosing the best means to the best end. Okay? Knowing and choosing the best means to the best end. Wisdom must choose based on the knowledge of the facts at hand. So we want to we want to make decisions based on the best facts. M- wisdom must choose upon the knowledge of correct values. So it's not just enough for us to know what is true. We need to understand how do we look at this life? How do we look and value real life then make our decision? 
we recognize that someone who, who values their family and values the word of God and values the, the church and values the structures of polite society uh, probably uh, would think of life differently than somebody who rejects the, the knowledge of God and rejects the value of the home and rejects the value of the government. And uh, somebody who is making a decision over here is going to make those decisions on an entirely different value system than someone over here. And so we recognize that with Wisdom is not just making the right choice based on facts at hand, but it is saying, I'm also making the choice on the right value system. And so that is to say that there is one right way to look at life. There is one right way to look at life. You'd say, oh, well, of course, preacher, you would think your way is the right way. Yeah, or I would change the way I think. We would have to say that every one of us probably thinks we're approaching life the right way. And really, honestly, that's where the most rub happens in a culture is that we all come at life from these different value systems. And uh, if we're not careful, we let the value system stand up for itself as if it is proper and it is right. God gives us no such assumptions. God does not allow us to think that our value system gets to govern the day. That's why we have his word. That's why he's constantly calling the disciple to surrender his values and then take in its place God's values. This is why it's so important we know his word is so that we can live the value of his word in everyday life. And so God doesn't expect good Christian people's values to win. God expects his word and its values to have full reign in your life. And so when we talk about wisdom, we're talking about good knowledge, good information, as well as the proper lens for how to view that knowledge. It's not enough for us to have all the information, but for us to have the proper screen, the proper lens by which we view that same information. Understand this. There, there's, this there's this quote Jim Berg makes, and I want you to hear it tonight. No decision is wise that is not morally and ethically good and benevolent. No decision is wise that is not morally and ethically good and benevolent. So we understand that if God is wise, he is making decisions that are both good and morally benevolent. In other words, they are morally good for the people who will hold on to him, who hold on to his wisdom. So when we seek after wisdom, like the, the psalmist does here, we are seeking after the knowledge of an infinite knowing God, and we are seeking him to make a proper view of us with the right lens of life. And then we are asking him to judge us and allow us to see from his perspective. So that's what's happening here in this text, is the psalmist is asking for the wisdom of God, not just in general, but God, from your vantage point, look at my life and then guide me. It would be the same, this is the same request as if a believer came to the Word and came to that Bible, maybe tomorrow morning in your own Bible reading time, you take the Bible out and you say, God, I do not put on any idea that I am perfect, and I want you to take this Word and I want you to shine your light in my life and show me what you want me to surrender to you today. That would be the same exact thing as the psalmist is doing here. So we recognize that really our soul rests because God's wisdom is enough. I, my soul is allowed to rest 
because I can trust the wisdom of God. If I've got to come up with my own wisdom, I'm going to be studying for days and be working like crazy. No, 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 no. I've got to rest in the knowledge, the infinite knowledge of God and the proper lens by which to view my life. Then I want you to see here tonight, not only do we want to resign ourselves to the wisdom of God, but we want to rest in the forgiveness of God. So if we're going to approach the 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 uh, we're going to approach life and try to shake off the noise in our head and, and try to come to this place. Hear now verse number five with me. Hear the words here. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? He is wrestling with himself. Why am I feeling the way I'm feeling? Why am I going through what I am going through? Now, if we want to be able to face tomorrow knowing that when I look at my heart, I can look at the parameters of this life and I can know why my heart is feeling the way it is, or I want God to be able to reveal to me why I'm feeling what I'm feeling, why I'm carrying this burden that I'm carrying. And the psalmist here is is pleading with his own heart, why are you doing this? Why am I disquieted? Why is there no rest? Sometimes we we miss out on the rest of God because, one, we do not resign ourselves to the wisdom of God, and secondly, we do not rest in the forgiveness of God. I want to understand this idea of the forgiveness of God. If God is going to analyze my heart, and he is going to be the one fashioning and changing and shaping me, then he is going to show me sin that needs to be confessed. He is going to show me the the things in my life I need to surrender to him and die to myself so that he can put his his love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. He's going to place those things in, those things I need. He's going to install the things I need out. He is going to help me remove. And God is going to take me through this process of growing me to look like Jesus. In this process, I recognize that I am not the perfect one. I'm not perfect. And instead, what I want is I want to be resigned so that I might rest in the forgiveness of God. You know, sometimes the loudest noises in the soul are the agitations of a guilty conscience. The loudest noises in the soul are the agitations of a guilty conscience. Take your Bible now, and let's go to Psalm 32. I want you to go to Psalm 32, and we're going to look at a couple verses here. Psalm 32, and we're going to look at verse number 1 through verse number 4. And then we're going to look at Psalm 38. I want you to get your Bible out. Uh, we don't even, I didn't even put a slide in for Psalm 38. I want you to actually turn there and look with me. But Psalm 32, verse number 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and who, in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old, through the roaring of all the day long. For day and night thy hand were heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into drought of summer, Selah. Remember, here the psalmist is wrestling out this issue of forgiveness. He says, blessed is the one who's forgiven. And what was he, miss- what was he missing? He was missing that forgiveness. He was saying, my my, my 
My moisture has turned to drought. I've spent all night weeping. And we recognize that this is an image of, of even Jesus dying on Calvary. But the psalmist says, in my own life, it was my sin. On Calvary, it was our, save, it was our Savior taking my sin. And here, the psalmist is saying, I'm, I'm paying for my own sin. I'm, I'm carrying the, the shame and guilt, my consequences of my own sin. And so we find even in Psalm 38, look there with me. I said, I, I did have a, a little slip there, I said that I'm paying for my own sin. I'm not. Many, I, I can't pay for my own sin, but I do bear the consequences of my sin. And so we recognize in Psalm 38 now. Psalm 38 and verse number one, let's just read a few verses here. O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure, for thine arrows stick fast in me, and thy hand presseth me sore. There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger, neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. For iniquity, mine iniquities are gone over mine head as a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. I am troubled, I am bowed down greatly, I go mourning all the day long, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and sore broken. I have roared by reason of the disquietness of my heart. The psalmist here is saying, I am going through a great and heavy burden. Now, I, I, as we looked at Psalm 38, I pointed out, I don't believe that is necessarily what David was experiencing is not necessarily the way God handles the believer, uh, but rather this is David's perspective. This is David's idea of what was taking place because we find out a little bit later that God's going to release him from it. And uh, we recognize that David didn't have to bear the burden of his sin uh, and then eventually Jesus would come along to bear it, but rather he was to look forward to the one who was going to take away the sins of the people as that perfect sacrifice would. And so uh, he was never asked to carry these burdens. We don't, we don't necessarily see it uh, this way that maybe he is, uh, God is actually trying to beat him up or break him or hurt him. Maybe God is doing some of those things. Uh, but really what, what David is dealing with here is a conscience, a wounded conscience, to where now every bad thing he sees as a direct connection from his sin or of his sin. And so I encourage you uh, to remember our conscience, our, our, um, our heart bears the burden of our sin. Consider what a conscience does. I want you to consider the conscience here this evening. Uh, think of the conscience the same way that you think of a, of a security system, right? A security system on uh, your house or on your vehicle. Consider a security system on your vehicle. Uh, you know, on your vehicle, uh, you have, uh, you know, do not tamper uh, mechanisms built in. So if somebody comes over and tries to wiggle the handle of your door or they try to jimmy the lock or they try to slide one of those tools inside to get inside that lock, the moment they get that, that lock, mechanism to engage, if that security system is set, then all of a sudden everything around it begins to honk and, and blare and, and make a bunch of noise and the lights start blinking and going crazy. What you have there is you have an impulse, that is the intruder is trying to, to break in, trying to make entry into the vehicle. Uh, this is then detected by a sensor, and that sensor then sends the alarm to the horn, right? It sends the alarm uh, to the horn and to the lighting system, and it's the sensor that's pushing the information 
to the mechanism that makes all the noise. And from that, the, the very next product, the byproduct, is the action of securing your, your vehicle. You're going to call the police or you're going to, uh, you're gonna, you know, practice your Second Amendment rights. I don't, I don't know how you're going to handle it. You're going to go out and deal with the issue uh, with your, uh, your, the intruder has kicked on a response based on the sensor and, uh, and then there is an action taken. Now, the one, the intruder could say, well, I, I don't like the action that was taken. Great. Then don't trip the sensor. Don't mess with the sensor. Don't mess with the vehicle. If you are the intruder and you don't happen to like the action of getting arrested, then leave the vehicle alone, right? That just kind of makes basic sense. That's why the, the system is set up is so that you won't be tempted to mess with the vehicle. So uh, we would we understand that then. If you don't like the result, then, then there's a decision to be made even before the vehicle is ever interacted with. Uh, this is the way our conscience works. The conscience works the same way. Sin, that intruder, it, it tries to find a place into the heart of every human being. Not every Christian, not every lost person. Every human being, sin is trying to make its way inside. Sin wants to take up home and residence in your heart and in your mind. That's what sin is doing. Whether you are a young man who is on the internet, whether you are a mom who is, uh, who is gossiping or, or maybe, uh, maybe acting out in anger, if you're a dad who is uh, carrying on uh, in, in, in manipulation and bullying and lying and stealing, uh, these things are, are sins trying to find their way as a permanent resident in your heart. That's their goal, to take room in your heart. Now, you would be detected. That same detection system is in place. The detection system is called a conscience. This detected, the, the conscience would really play two parts. First, our conscience is a detector. It says, wait a second, sin doesn't belong in here. We don't want sin in the heart. We don't sin in our mind. We don't want that stuff affecting our soul. So the conscience says, whoa, 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 that's not okay. Hey, you shouldn't think those thoughts. You shouldn't say those words. You need to change your attitude. And the conscience is, uh, is throwing up the alarms. It's casting out the horn because that's its second job. The first job is to detect that something is wrong. It's second, that we could use it this way, we could use this word, afflict. One is to detect, the other is to afflict. And so sin comes into the heart, and, and, and our, our conscience detects the sin. It says, whoa, 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 that attitude that you had there, that we don't want that to become a permanent thing. That's ugly. It doesn't please Jesus. It is not right. You need to deal with that attitude, right? Deal with the attitude. And you say, no, I was right. I shouldn't have been treated that way. I tell you, if I had the opportunity, I'd do it again and again and again. And what begins to happen? The guilt begins to set in. That conscience begins to, to chafe against our heart. And we carry this burden around with us. And we feel miserable for the way we've talked to our wife or talked to our kids. Or, or we carry around the, the burden of those thoughts or the burden of those, those uh, words that we've shared or thought of in our hearts. And instead of dealing Dealing with the sin, the intruder, we, we allow it to just kind of take up residence. We, we've had the detector go off, and the affliction begins to work. The pain begins to work. And so instead of dealing with the sinner, what do we do? We tune out the affliction. We tune out the horn. The horn's going crazy. Beep, beep, beep. It's losing its mind. And we are ignoring it. And what happens? We begin to lose the peace that God really designed us to have. We carry around attitudes. We carry around thought processes. We carry around uh, old, uh, old fleshly ways of interacting with people and the thoughts that we carry. 
So what is the conscience calling us to do? The conscience is calling us to find relief. You could have relief for your conscience tonight. What is the conscience driving it? What is the action that needs to take place for the conscience to be finally at peace? That is confession. Confession. You see, when we go, when sin tries to intrude, the 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 conscience has an opportunity. The conscience says, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! That's sin," and you can make immediate confession. Hey, that's sin. All confession is is to agree with what God says is true about sin. So when I look at my life and and all of a sudden this thing pops up that I didn't expect, I can look at it and say, hey, that's sin. What have I done? Immediately I confessed it. The conscience, it stops. There's no alarm. The horn didn't go off. I caught it right there at detection. And so my conscience doesn't carry any shame. It doesn't carry any guilt. It doesn't care. It was it was instant. I couldn't have handled the impulse. But what did I do? I listened to the conscience God gave me to shut down with confession. The same is true tonight. You're carrying around that burden, that attitude, that attitude, excuse me. I'm going to end up with the hiccups if I'm not careful. The attitude, that, that, uh, that meanness, that, that frankness, those evil thoughts, whatever they might be, when, that, when your heart says, whoa, that's sin, and then you let it go, and that alarm is going off in your heart and mind, my friend, do not underestimate the burden and weight of conscience wearing down your soul for weeks Months, some people for years have been doing, have been following what they know is sin, but they don't want to deal with it. They don't want to call it what God calls it. And so their conscience is chafing their heart. It's working against their heart. And they carry this burden around, always just heavy to carry with them. And God says, I want to relieve you of it. Just agree with me that that is sin. You see, this is how sin works. Consider Romans chapter 2 and verse number 15. Which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In other words, your conscience is doing the job of accusing you or excusing you. And so we have to recognize that we are always through the, going through this process. When that conscience goes off, what are we trying to do? We're either going to accept the accusation, hey, that's sin, or we're going to excuse ourselves out of it. I encourage you, let us be those who, who immediately will call sin, sin, and keep away from it. Romans chapter 2.15 tells us that. It tells us that our conscience is like a discerner. It is like it, it literally bears witness that what is right and wrong. Now the Bible also tells us in Psalm 51.3, For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Our heart through that conscience has a way of putting our sin constantly in front of us, constantly before me. We are looking at our transgression. We're looking at our sin. We're looking at what is wrong. That's what the conscience is meant to do. Bring the transgression in front of us, making us deal with it. 1 John 3.21 says, Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. You see what is happening? Your conscience 
tells you you're not right. Something's not right. There's sin where there shouldn't be sin. You need to confess the sin so you can have peace with God. And what is the heart constantly doing? It's constantly reminding us you're not right with God. If you'll deal with it, the Bible says you'll have confidence before God. You'll walk right up to him. You'll walk right into his presence. You can have confidence before the Lord tonight to know that you are right with him. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 1.12, for our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you word. You see what our conscience does? It testifies. It it tells us that something it is the testimony and our conscience is constantly saying you are right before men, you are right before God. You are clean, you are pure, you're holy, you're okay. Just keep going forward. You're doing great. That what is happening? Our conscience is giving us a witness, a testimony that everything is as it should be. Much of the reason God's people are lacking peace is because of the agitation of unconfessed sins. How, how do you know that? Because God's word is infinite. His wisdom is infinite. And when it seeks out the soul, when it searches the heart, it says, whoa, 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 whoa. There's sin here. There's sin here. You got to deal with this. You can't let it continue. You can't let it go. You don't want to let it have, have a place in your life. And so as the psalmist, you can come before him and say, why is my soul cast down? Why is my soul disquieted within me? What was his call? Search me, judge me, O oh God. My friend, we've got to go back before the Lord and seek him as he would search out our hearts for sin. The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. You see, we can live with a clean, clear conscience and we don't have to have any fear, shame, hurt, heartache. We don't have to carry any of that. You see, we recognize as John 8, 9 says, they which, and they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even until the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. What was it that, that pushed the scribes and Pharisees away from their judgment of the woman caught in the act of adultery? They were going to stone her to death, and instead their conscience heard the word of God. What, what was it that Jesus said? Let he who has not sinned cast the first stone. And what happened? Boom, their conscience got them. Their conscience knew that they were wrong and that sin was present with them. Even a lost man, even a religious man, even a man trapped up in bondage to religion can know his conscience is wrong. He can know he has violated the law of God and that sin is present. You see, the Bible goes on and says, when I kept, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night, thy hand was heavy upon Upon me, my moisture is turned to drought of summer. My friend, you can live with the benefit of the peace of a good conscience, or you can live with the agitation of the noise of a guilty conscience. The difference is whether or not you're going to confess sin in your life. So then how do we adjust that conscience? How do we wrestle out that conscience? You see, the, con the conscience is desensitized by constantly sinning and rationalizing the sin. 
when we go out to sin, when we allow sin in and we don't confess it and forsake it as soon as it happens, we have to rationalize it. Oh, you know, this is something from my childhood, you know. No, 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 no. this is something I've been doing for years. I'm addicted. I'm stuck. I'm, it's a habit. I can't, you know, and what are all those? All of those are rationalizations. God promised you that through Christ you could walk as a new creature. Old things passed away. All things become new. Yet over and over and over and over again, God's people offer up weak, unsatisfactory rationalizations for their sin. My friend, you can have victory. We choose to rationalize. Ah, preacher, you know what? God understands how hard this is for me. God understands it's been a stressful time. No, God understands that you are free from sin. You choose to go back and rationalize it. So we recognize, I I don't have to judge you. I'm telling you good news. Don't, Don't hear your preacher judge you tonight. I am giving you good news Christ has given you freedom, and anything that keeps you locked into sin is rationalizing the sin. That's it. Well, what about what I'm going to feel? That's all, that's all make-believe. Don't you, you, can, you can go into it. You can face it. But there's nothing about withdrawals. There's nothing about that, that, that anger and the angst and the anxiety and the, the, the way I'm going to treat people. There's nothing about that that you actually have to go through. You can go through it, and you don't have to mistreat people. You can go through it, and you can seek God for strength. You can go through it and give yourself a couple days break. You can do something that makes it so you don't have to go in to a, to a, a bad situation and continue the sin in that bad situation. The Bible makes clear to us that we are free so we can live in freedom. The Bible says, 1 Timothy 4.2, understand what the Bible says here. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Whoa. You know that you rationalizing your sin is searing your conscience. You are deadening the sensitivity to your conscience. I don't know how many of you have calluses on your hands. I hope I hope we got a good group of men with calluses on their hands. You've been swinging a hammer, you've been swinging a shovel, or you've been doing something already this summer. And man, you got a whole batch of brand new calluses. I have a, a callus on my finger where I write, and every time I write, yes, I still do write. I I keep a notebook and I take notes in it, and every time. You write. I, I grab that pencil in the same place I've done so since I was five years old. Miss Doss taught me how to hold a pencil in my hand. And I remember ever since then, I've ground myself a good old callus there. And what happens is I don't feel I don't feel pain the same way here on this callus as I do on fresh skin. This doesn't work that way. The Bible says we sear our our conscience. We can deaden the impulse of our conscience. And my concern is that believers would continue to do so, leaving themselves less sensitive to the work of God's word on their heart. Titus chapter 1, verse number 15, the Bible says, Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their minds and conscience is defiled. You can have a defiled conscience. You can have a deadened conscience. You can have a defiled conscience. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.19, Who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness, to work all uncleanliness with greed. We live in that culture today. 
We have a denied conscience. We have people who do not even believe there is such a thing as a conscience. They believe they are like the dog in the street, like the cat in the litter box. They believe that they are just another animal. They are just a higher evolved form of of animal. They think they are in a chain of mammals. They do not realize they are made in the image of God. They do not realize that they are precious in the sight of God. They do not realize that God has gone to the links of Calvary to save their soul, and they therefore live as an animal. And the Bible says there are people who live with a, a, a deadened conscience, they live with a defiled conscience, and there are many who are living with a denied conscience. They act as if it doesn't exist. And then the Bible tells us in Romans one twenty one. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, their foolish heart was darkened, and they ended up with a darkened conscience. That that same idea of darkness is the word used to describe Lot in the book of Peter. The Bible tells us there that just Lot, having his conscience, having his conscience deadened, he they. Bible uses the term, uh, he uses the, the idea of covering one's eyes, that Lot had allowed himself to go completely blind to the sin, sin around him because he refused to see the sin. He had allowed his conscience to get so deadened, so diluted, so defiled, so, dark, so uh, uh, um, uh, denied that eventually it became darkened. I tell you, believer, I don't know where we may be on this line. If you are not resting in peace, if you do not have the peace of God in your life, if you're not enjoying uh, the, the walk that you have with Christ, my friend, run to Christ, seek him out, ask God to show you how you have been treating the conscience he gave you, and let's go back. Let's work out of this. If your conscience is darkened tonight, run before the Lord. Confess every sin. Confess the sins, the attitudes, the approaches, the way you treat your family, the way you treat your friends, and and deal with each and every one of them. And go before God and just simply say, Lord, what you call is sin, it's sin. And my attitude towards sin is that you are right. And then let's call them out one by one. And every time you feel your conscience saying, that's sin, you call it what it is. That is sin. And what happens is I believe that many of God's people can be healed from that, del- that, that delusion, that, uh, that uh, darkening. You can have your conscience, I believe, refreshed if we will intentionally call out what God's word says is sin. So you and I, just as we are able to feel pain outside of those calluses, our heart can feel that that tinge, that that alarm, that uh, detection of our conscience, and I encourage you to then make an a, a proper action towards the Lord. 